This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. On this week's podcast, we welcome Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jhumpa Lahiri, who comes to the library to celebrate the release of her new novel, In Other Words. In this conversation with NYPL's Paul Holdengraber, Lahiri talks about nostalgia, expression, and her love of the Italian language. I'd like to begin by speaking about midlife crisis. <laughs> Tony Judd, in a fantastic essay called Midlife Crisis in the Memory Chalet, has the following to say. Bear with me, it will take about a minute. Other men change wives. Some change cars some change gender. The point of a midlife crisis is to demonstrate continuity with one's youth by doing something strikingly different. To be sure, different is a relative term. A man in the throes of such a crisis usually does the same as every other man. That, after all, is how we know it's a midlife crisis. But mine was a little different. I was the right age, at the right time, divorcing wife number two, and experiencing the usual mid middle-aged uncertainties. What is all this about? But I did it my way. I learned Czech. <laughs> Learning Czech made me a very different sort of scholar, historian, and person. Would it have made me a significant difference had I taken up, say, Polish? My friends certainly thought, though. To them, Czech was a small Slav language, much as Russian colleagues would later describe Polish, and I had inexplicably opted to specialize in what for them was the equivalent of the history of, say, Wales. But without my Czech obsession, I would not have found myself in Prague in November 1989, watching Havel accept the presidency from a balcony in the town square. Above all, I could never have written post-war my history of Europe since 1945. My Czech adventures did not get me a new wife, until much later and only indirectly, much less a new car. But they were the best midlife crisis I could have wished for. There were more things in heaven and earth than were dreamt of in Western philosophy, and I had belatedly seen some of them. Now, Jhumpa Lahiri, does, does this sound familiar? Yes, extremely. In fact, I've, of, I've thought over in recent years that I am, this is what's happening, that it has been a sort of wonderful midlife crisis, you know, the best kind, I think, you know, to have a relationship uh, with a language and... An affair with a language. 
Well, in a, a relationship um, that has so many different, um, there's so many different ways to look at it, you know, and I, I, I explore this a little in the book. I mean, thinking of it first in strictly romantic terms and then, and then feeling a sort of maternal relationship to, to the language. That's an interesting that was an interesting shift, you know. Um, and so, I, so I, rec I see myself in that, in that passage very much, you know. And, and I think that, in a sense, language is the most intimate relationship of, of our lives, at least, I think, for me. I mean, and this is not to say that I don't love deeply people, and have profound relationships with them. But, but I think language is, um, it's so much more powerful than we are, you know? And so to have a relationship with language is a, is a very profound thing. Um, and to go, to, go to, to seek another language, I think, is, is so powerful, it's so humbling. Did you, did you need this challenge in some way? Was it a way for you to shake yourself up? I mean, it feels, when I read the Tony Judd, it felt to me that he, his midlife crisis and learning Czech was something he needed. Well, it certainly was a need. It comes from a need. But the interesting thing is, I mean, though I have thought now and then... Um, Yes, I'm going through some sort of linguistic midlife crisis, identity crisis. I mean, so a few things. I mean, I have, in a way, been preparing for this midlife crisis since I was, what, 26 or 7 years old. So that's interesting because it's not that suddenly I was capsized by something in my, what I hope is the middle of my life. Um, so there was this slow preparation from my youth, right? Um, my young adult years. On the other hand, I feel, I feel like I'm someone who has developed very slowly as a person and in lots of ways. Um, and, and I think I was, I was a very, very young 20-something-year-old. I wasn't like a lot of other people I knew who were my age. I always felt very behind uh, in certain respects, in many respects. So, so yes, on the one hand, it, I, think, I think of it as a midlife crisis, what I've done with Italian. On the other hand, I think of it as the real first adolescence of my life. So how do you reconcile those two things because I, I feel yeah. both the sort of person in, in her 40s seeking something radically new, you know, and I also feel for the first time the child who stood up and said, I'm not going to do that. And you know, so. what, what comes to my mind is that you can't reconcile them. But I like it. I like it that it has these two dimensions. That it know. has this tension. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in one sense, it comes at the right time in my biological arc because I am, you know, 48. So, yes, it makes sense that it happened now and not 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. On the other hand, I do feel that 
it has a powerful adolescent strain, what's happening here. You, you, you write in your book, from the creative point of view, there's nothing so dangerous as security. Yes, I do. <laughs> and that seems to me the challenge, that you, 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 you are avoiding what would have been so easy. Yes, well, I, I, I just feel instinctively it's not right. It's not right to feel comfortable. And it's not... It, it makes me actually sort of anxious um, to feel totally settled, which is ironic because I'm a sort of profoundly unsettled person in some senses, having not the sort of points of reference, right? that might settle pe people, um, uh, or maybe not the traditional points of reference, because I do have points of reference in my life. And in some sense, I feel very settled. I feel very rooted as a person. Um, but I didn't. I didn't as a child, and if we are formed by the age of seven, then I definitely didn't feel that. Um, but... Um, no, I have completely lost my train of thought. What I wanted to say something. Um, that's, I, I think that's it's key. magnificent yeah. to lose it. Oh, no, this yeah. is what I wanted to say. No, I, I think... No, I mean, I, I think... Exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. no, I mean, it, it's... Like, for example, I noticed that the moment in which I wanted to leave New York, when I started to feel the need to, to go away and to leave it behind, was precisely at the moment when life was getting very settled. You know, life was getting very settled. We had our house. We lived in it. We were raising our children. Everything was sort of going along in this direction. And once I realized that it had kind of gone into gear and it was moving along, that was the moment I got... I had a sudden deep desire to get out and see it from a totally different point of view or to not see it at all maybe for a while, just to do something else. Um, that's what I wanted to say, you know. So, so it's that feeling of, and, and I think especially in terms of writing, in terms of, of, of the inspiration and, and, and the work, um, you know, the, the strange contradiction of Italian, which people have, I mean, I think I have tried to explain in the book, um, but people have asked me about, I mean, it, it's all a series of contradictions, this whole path, the whole project. But I think the, the central one is, you know, I'm, I'm looking for some kind of rootedness, some kind of home, some kind of place, point of reference, all of these things that were lacking in my life. And so, and, and why? Because I want to feel comfortable, I want to feel comforted in the world. You know, I don't like this sense of why don't I fit in anywhere? Why don't I belong anywhere? Why can't I call any place home? This anxiety. And so what do I do? I, I look for it in a totally new language in which I am completely alien and I feel very much... I am very much a stranger, right? A foreigner. A foreigner. I mean, by definition, I'm a foreigner in that language. And yet I feel at home. It's the feeling of feeling at home within the 
obvious atmosphere of, of, of the other and of foreignness. And, um, and so I think there's something, something to be explored there in that what do other languages give us and why are we driven, driven to them? And I was very struck um, a few weeks ago. I, was, um, I teach a translation workshop now at Princeton, so I was preparing for the class, and, and I was reading about, um, I was reading Cicero on translation and what he thought about, you know, he had many things to say about this, um, needless to say, but there, there's, at a certain point he says, you know, it's, it's la lingua altrui, it's the language of the other that can give back, that can restore to us something that is missing. And when I read that, I realized this is what was going on, that I was searching for something I felt I didn't have, and it was Italian that gave it to me. And so even though it is the other, it, ha it was a part of me that was missing. If I make myself clear, I hope. Um, so that struck me very much, this idea, and, and the whole project of translation. You know, that's what's behind, that's what's driving translation. It's, it's this, this idea of the, if, of the other, of the other, but everyone talks about the other, but just the other language, you know, and, and, and that there is something that we cannot get out of the languages we, we have at our disposal. You know, we, we sometimes speak about the, the idea that we, the eye cannot see itself. Mm. And it's so, it's so hard to, to be self-reflexive as a person, and you're saying the same thing in terms of language. The other language, in a way, nurtures. Yes, it is. And, and revivifies in some way. Well, it's both, it's both healing, right? It's had some sort of curative powers, I think, Italian, um, in my life. It's, it's sort of... Curative. Yes. I think it's, 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 it's healed a certain... Maybe not completely, but it's, 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 it's given me a certain equilibrium that I needed in terms of my sort of personal interior landscape and how I viewed things and how I viewed myself vis-a-vis, -vis, how I viewed things vis-a-vis -vis myself. So, so I think it has had a kind of curative power, and yet it is the language of, of for me, of, of disagio. You know, it's not a language in which I'm ever comfortable. I, I cannot be comfortable in the language. I'm always going to be looking over my shoulder saying, thinking, did I say that right? Did I spell that right? Did, is that the right word? Is that the right construction? You know, because it's never, it's never firm under my feet. It's, it's like... It's so extraordinary. You, you were feeling discomfort. You went to another country and another language to somehow take yourself out of this feeling of discomfort to end up in a place which also made you uncomfortable. <laughs> Yes, but it's like... But had a curative effect at the same time. All like, of that. Happened. I think it's like people who devote themselves to the sea or something. You know, it's like sailors. It's like people who, who can't live on the earth. They can't do it. It's too painful. It's too firm, you know. Um, and so they take to the sea, and then they can't come back. That's you how know? your book begins. 
Exactly. And so this, print, this metaphor of, of the crossing and the water and the swimming... And losing it's, ground. It's all kind of connected, you Being know. Being at sea. Yes. And I think, you know, I remember a few years ago we were sailing around the Aeolian Islands uh, for a week in a sailboat. Um, my family and with another family with whom we're close friends. And... Um, so we all got onto the boat, and we were all very excited for this adventure. And I remember what... Um, so we, nobody, none of us knew how to sail the boat, so we had a, a very nice uh, skipper, we called him, Los Skipper, um, Sicilian. And he said, as we were setting out, uh, he said, well, there's one thing you have to know, which is we don't belong here. We are human beings and we don't belong on the water. And it's dangerous and it can kill us. And it's, it's not where we're supposed to be. And you have to know this and you have to respect that. And you have to respect the sea because it's so much powerful than we are. And it really doesn't like us. And yet we love it. And we are going to sail. And we're going to have a great week. And we did. You know, I mean, he, he said it in a much more <laughs> profound, beautiful way than I am. But I was really struck by what he said. Because I think it's true. And I, and I immediately thought of my relationship to Italian. And I thought, that's, that's Italian for me. I'm, I'm sailing through this language, and it's dangerous, and I don't belong in it. Um, and yet, it's, it's this sort of sublime experience for me. You know? And you need to respect the distance. And I, well, I need to respect it. You know, I need to respect what it is and what it is in relationship to me and the distance between us that remains forever. And I have to respect that even if... I mean, look, we, one can learn how to swim. You know, one can survive in the water up to a certain point. And, but then after a certain point, one will drown, right? I mean, we are not made to live in the water. We're not fish. So that's what the, the skipper was saying. We're not fish. We're human beings. And we're not meant to be here. This is not our our element. Um, but yeah. I thought that was very, you know, it, it sort of put things clearly for me. Um, you know, one of those moments. But these things happen to me in Italian. You know, these things happen when, it, to me often with Italians who say things like this and suddenly everything is very clear. One, one thing that struck me in, in your book is you talk about about speed and slowness and the necessity of slowness and it it reminded me of a wonderful line in in Paul Valéry that Walter Benjamin mentions where he says modern man no longer works at what cannot be abbreviated well certainly yeah. learning a language cannot be abbreviated and it's just a constant prolongation rather, right? And it never ends. You can never end. You can never stop learning another language because it's like exploring the Pacific Ocean. I mean, Do you, you think know? part of, of the journey towards Italy was a way of going from a sense of fame here in this country towards anonymity? Well, uh, anonymity in, in the real sense of the word of not quite having a name. 
I was I don't really think about those things very much. I don't I don't really think of myself as being famous really in my day-to-day -day life it doesn't really you know I'm not really aware of it but I but I like the 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 um I like the feeling of returning to a sort of um solitary state uh feeling like an apprentice I liked that I liked feeling um that um I liked the idea of writing something um and feeling kind of embarrassed about it. I liked that feeling. And I, because I felt that when I first started writing, I felt mortified. I was so ashamed, I was so embarrassed, I was so afraid that I was writing. Because it wasn't something that was, well, for a variety of reasons, shall we say, it just wasn't something I felt com comfortable, confident doing. You know, and I was always sort of pushing it away hoping it would not bother me anymore. We'll, I think we'll touch upon the variety of reasons, or what I imagine that, that phrase of yours might indicate. There are two passages which I'll read very quickly from In Other Words, which talk about your, I mean, for me, they talk very much about your, your tactile, um, kind of sensual feeling for the Italian language. You say, from the start, my relationship with Italy is as auditory, auditory as it is visual. I feel a connection and at the same time a detachment, a closeness and at the same time a distance. What I feel is something physical, inexplicable. It stirs an indiscreet, absurd longing, an exquisite tension, love at first sight. That seems, you know, it, it reminded me of a line I think that Isabella Allende mentioned here that in Latin America one makes love through the ear. That there's something about the auditory quality of Italian that inebriated you. And it must have been because it was that sensation of being surrounded by it, you know, in Florence, where I went, where I first found myself. Um, and it was like that, how I describe it, that, that, that noise that is, um, you know, when before this began and everybody was sort of talking in the, out there and, and that's how it felt. It was that sort of murmuring collective something that I, I, I knew people were saying things, but I couldn't distinguish Did what anybody was saying. Before we came on stage. Before we came on stage, you, just, you know. It was something that. Yes. But that's how I describe it in the book. You know, it was just when I found, when I was in Florence, I, it was like I was, it was like I had walked in and, and you know, all of these people were just sort of talking and, and I, was, I just wanted to understand what they were saying. Um, it was the, it was just the, the, the desire to understand um, that led me on this. And the longing that was a kind of recognition. Well, there was a recognition, and and that's why, um, strangely, um, it's hard for me to think. It's hard for me to call Italian a foreign language. I mean, I know it is, 
but I can't bear to call it that because I don't think of it that way. You know, it feels familiar to me, and it felt familiar to me from the very beginning before I understood a word of it, just the way I think some people, you meet them, and you do feel like you've known them, you already have known them, you've already known them, even though you just started talking to them, and I... You're in the middle of a conversation. You, you're already, you've already gone somewhere together. Who knows how or when? I don't know, you know, but you know, it reminds me of that poem of Baudelaire where he says, j'ai plus de souvenirs que si j'avais mille ans. I have more memories than if I was a thousand years old. You somehow feel that there, there's something that preceded the, the, the initial approach um, of the port. Yes, and so you're already in the middle of it, you know, I mean... And this happens sometimes when you're lucky, you know. I, when I met my husband, I felt that. When, with certain friends, I feel that. It's like, well, we, but we are already friends. Here we are. We're already friends. We're just, it's just a matter of actually knowing what your name is, but we already know each other, you know. And, but you have this with certain people, right? Not with everybody, but with some people you do. Thankfully, not with everyone. Not with, yes, they very thankfully. That would be... I mean, it would be, it it would would be, be exhilarating, but also no, exhausting. very exhausting. Um, Life is already exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> As it is. Yes. No, because it's exhausting also because it's so immersive. Yes. Right? And what struck me also is that when you left, you left your, your library behind. Yes. You left everything. To you? <laughs> true. Um, <clears throat> true. Um, so I do know your library, and it, since Umberto Eco just just died, and he was on the stage many many times, there's a line of his which I love, where he says, "The contents of someone's bookcase are part of his history, like an ancestral portrait." Mm, beautiful. So you. But you, you abandoned your, your, your English library. You say, suddenly none of my books are useful anymore. They seem like ordinary objects. The anchor of my creative life disappears. The stars that guided me recede. And there's kind of a, really a violent gesture of getting rid of it. I wonder what, what's in that. I mean, except for that dictionary that you carry around. Before coming down here, we went to the special collections and saw some extraordinary objects, I think, uh, books of, of Shelley and Byron. But the one that really caught your attention was a dictionary. Called an interpreter. Yeah. Which Incredible. Yeah. Speak about recognition. Exactly. You know, why did I call my first book that? Anyway, um, but, uh, but your question is, yes, this, um, um, why yeah. this, um, this um, breaking with the points of reference? Yeah. Well, it's, I think, I mean... And I don't mean in terms of just how heavy things are to carry. I think... Um, there's more to that gesture. No, there's, there's much more. I mean, I think on some level, clearly, I am trying to experience something that is very much a part of my family history, which is leaving, right? Leaving those points of reference, 
what that means, um, what the what the danger of that is, what the uh, the benefits of that may be, what the mystery of that is, the, all of the insecurity that is churned up as a result of, of leaving that port of, you know, uh, in which one is secure, one feels secure and rooted and where things make sense. So, you know, having parents who, who did that um, or were... were who chose, I mean, one chose to do that and the other followed and had other feelings about, about this voyage, about the departure. Um, but in some sense, I think, I mean, we're always trying to figure out our parents, right? And, um, and I haven't really stopped. And so I think there's that. There's that behind it. Um, but I think, apart from the kind of, you know, familial model and my curiosity, my kind of lifelong curiosity about, you know, that fundamental act of my parents, you know, to, to go away, um, that definitive moment, that, that voyage, that decision, um, I think... As an artist, I, I, I did it also for myself. You know, it wasn't just to say, to, to think, what is it like to leave your, you know, your known set of variables for an unset, unknown set of variables. Um, I think it, there was something more on the creative level um, play, at play. Was there something know? stoic in the sense that you become somehow self-sufficient? No, I, I, no, nothing, no stoicism. I, I did it all out of love and devotion, willing. You know, it's, I mean, when you love something, you just do anything for it, right? You live for it. And so, yes, one day I stopped reading in English because I felt it was, it was interfering and I wanted to just concentrate on Italian. And... Because that is something, I mean, important for people to understand, is that you, you actually, as this writer in English, stopped, I mean, just cut your ties for a while with this language that you don't call your mother tongue, which, you know, to me, of course, resonates tremendously because I grew up more or less as a linguistic monster myself with many languages... Um, and I always said I had no mother tongue but several father tongues. You know, somehow I, I didn't quite have that. Well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. But, but, um, but no, I think, um, again, I've lost my... I was about to say something. Then you say such interesting things and I, I get... But you know, that's I, good. It's good, I, I, right? I, yeah. I, I think it's good. I have... I have no issues <laughs> with, with you losing your train of thought. And if you think that I'm keeping mine, you're wrong. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's partly what happens when we it's talk true. to each other. It's true. It'll come to me, or maybe not. Or, or maybe, not. maybe um, not. I like what you said to me, you know. 
I, maybe I never, never told you, but when we came back from Rome in the fall, um, I called you, right? And it was a very intense conversation you and I had for various reasons, but I, I said to you, um, well, I didn't really want to come back, Paul, but I'm going to try, I'm going to try to get used to things again here. And you said, but maybe you won't. And I thought that was such a nice thing for you to say. <laughs> you know, it just, it just took the, all the pressure off. And I thought, yeah, maybe I won't. And that's okay too, you know, because I've always been, I've always felt the obligation to, you know, always kind of conform to everything. Oh, I have to do this now, I'll do it this way. I have to do this, I have to do it this way. And when you just, when you said, well, maybe you won't. And I thought, yes, maybe I won't. Maybe I won't. Maybe it will be unresolved and imperfect and there will be that irritant. That irritant and, and, you know, and this whole notion of, well, you know, I have a, a great affection for this English psychoanalyst, Adam Phillips, and the whole notion of being balanced. Right. Maybe it's Overrated. altogether wrong. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, because I, I you know, I talk about equilibrium in this book, the balance, the triangle, and all of these things. And I, I think, yes, we seek balance, and everybody wants to be peaceful and harmonious and balanced and all of these things. Um, it's a good idea. It's, but, well... It's not, I mean, you know... I mean, yes and no, but I mean, I, I think if you're creating, you know, if you're living, if you're choosing to live outside the balance zone, you know, we and if you're actually more interested in disrupting the balance and turning it upside down and poking into it and taking it apart and pulling the threads out, I mean, this is what we're doing as, as artists, right? This is, life is, yes, it would be nice if it were all nice and harmonious and ordered, but disorder is the greater power, right? And, and so if you're, and, and that's, you have to be in touch with that. You know, you, you have to sort of let it, let it happen to you. Yes, because it's all, I mean, it's all well and good for me to say, oh, you know, in the middle of my life, I, I learned Italian and I, you know... Sounds I'm, like the I, beginning I, of Dante. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. magari. Um, but it's one thing to, to, to conceive of it that way and say, ah, yes, there was the Bengali, there was the English, there was the continuous war, there was the crisis, the anxiety, and then along comes Italian, and then um, everything is this kind of harmonious situation, but it's not. It's not at all. It's, it's so much more complicated now, but it's good. It's a, good, you, it's, it's a good complication. It's a good state of, uh, you know, it's just, how do you resolve something? You don't. You complicate it, you know, and that's what I try to teach my students, you know, I don't, I don't, don't make, don't tie it up at the end, you know, take it somewhere, enrich it, complicate it, deepen it, leave it ambiguous, that this is life, not, not the other way around. I mean, I, I, I feel this so much in, in the chair I sit, you know, people sometimes ask me to moderate, and I say, but I'm, I'm not moderate. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know how to do that. I can instigate. I cannot facilitate. I don't, you know, when people tell me, could you facilitate this conversation? I feel like, you know, 
they need to take some pills for digestion. I mean, it, it, just, it just makes no sense to me to facilitate a conversation, but rather to show different sides of it. Um, but you know what, what, what struck me also in, in the way you were describing, and then Bengali, and then this, this is a kind of work that a biographer does later, a simple biographer, might try to show there was this period, that period, and then it was resolved by this. But our lives are lived in very different ways than described in a, in a biography that tries to make sense of a life right. in those ways. I remember the thread that I lost. Oh, yes. you see? I remember now I don't thread. remember where the thread was. <laughs> I, I'll remind go. you. Yeah, go. You said something about, but you were, you were talking about the sort of renunciation moment and that I was a writer in, in the English language and, you know, and then so to stop reading in English and to do these things signified, you know. And it's true. I, I, I was a writer in the English language. Um, I was. But I, don't, I didn't think of it that way because, because of this gap I felt all my life between me and English, which going into Italian, I suddenly, when I looked back, I saw that it was there. Because I don't think that it would have been possible for me to do what I've done if that bond were more um, solid. You know, there is always this room for slippage between me and all of the languages, right? Um, and, and, and what I think, that was sort of the revelation. The space in between. Yes, that there is no, I'm not up against, you know, and then this, we now can perhaps discuss the hotly debated mother tongue topic, if you wish or not wish. But, but in any case, this, this, is the, this is the realization is that even though I left a house in Brooklyn full of so many books in English that had shaped me and formed me and inspired me for so many years, I felt that there was a, there, why didn't I miss them? You yeah. know, people kept asking me, well, don't you miss reading in English? What's, what's, don't you miss it? What's wrong with What's you? wrong with you? You know, there's something wrong with you. It's like, don't you miss your kid, you know? And I didn't. I didn't miss English. Um, the kid, maybe not, but the books, <laughs> the books. So that's the thing. But it was like almost something unnatural. Yeah. It's like, what do you mean you don't miss that? It, that's a part of you. You have to miss it, you know. But I didn't miss it. I really didn't. Um, you felt freed in some way I did. also. I felt freed and I felt turned on by something else completely that was... Uh, opening up my mind and my soul and everything was things were happening that were surprising and I thought well I, I've got this one life and yes I have spent many years reading adoring worshipping writers in English so why not if I have the ability now to deepen my understanding of Italian through reading which is the primary, you know, I mean, the writing is a kind of a minor project compared to the reading, which is really the, what I'm doing here. I'm reading in Italian, you know, and um, can I share nice news with you today? I don't think it's a secret, but um, 
So today I was asked to be one of the voters um, for the Strega Prize. And I was so moved, I almost started crying. I thought, I can't believe this. You know, I've been trusted to vote uh, for, you know, the Strega Prize, which is the most um, important prize in, in Italy for literature and to read for um, fiction. And they're trusting me, they're giving me this vote. And I thought, I earned that, you know, with all of this study, with all of this reading, with all of this, this de dedication of, you know, and, and maybe the, I mean, if I hadn't, if I hadn't stopped writing and reading in English, sorry, if I hadn't made this sort of radical, if I, if I hadn't taken that radical step, um, perhaps that wouldn't have happened, you know, because I think it's, it's over time that I read and I read and I keep reading and then, you know, I, I'm able to read people's novels and talk about them and then I, you know, I, in Rome or wherever I, I present them and, and, and then, you know, it, it sort of, suddenly it becomes apparent, oh, she can, she can read. But she can not only read, and, but, but she and she can, can understand, translate. And she can talk about it and all of these things. And I, I was just over, I was so overwhelmed this morning by this, this, this email. I really, um, anyway, but it was, it was... Um, no, not anyway, a bit more. <laughs> no, I mean, it was, I was very moved. I really, I was, I, I'm, I'm so um, honored. It's such a big honor for me to, 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 um, to do this, um, and so... It's nothing you could have even really imagined. No, none of it is. And, and it's you know? nothing towards which you worked. Well, I did. I know, you know, you did like work. A, <laughs> no, no, of like course a dog. you did. No, 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 you did work, <laughs> but you didn't work in order to become... No, You know, no. it wasn't, an, a, no, that no, wasn't no. the ambition, that's No, no, there was no ambition. I mean, there was ambition in that I wanted to... But you, you know, know, leaving but the books behind, just to, to end with that, that, that idea, it's also, you know, when people say, do you miss it, that they often assume, I think the word miss is so missing the point in some way, because missing often means that it's not a part of you. And in, well, in, exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, if someone said, you know, you've been away for five months, don't you miss your family? And if I said, well, not really, well, then that person would have a reasonable right to say, well, maybe there's something going on with that family, right? Because the ordinary person would say, well, yes, of course, I miss them, right? Because you're connected to them. That's the thing. You're connected to them and your, your life is, is a, a whole with them together. A, a and web. A web of affection, of love, of rituals of day-to-day -day, everything you know it's like they form your identity right so that's what i'm talking about so but 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 being away from from english going away leaving the books behind and not missing them shed light on the fact that the relationship was perhaps more complicated than i realized and it also, you know, it also permitted a certain freedom that you speak about in, in, in the book. And we've spoken about this once before, um, 
it, it reminds me of, of that great moment in Mimesis of Eric Auerbach, where he talks about arriving in Istanbul without any books. It's a, the war. And he, he's sort of ruminating and thinking that it is precisely because he doesn't have a library that he's able to write probably one of the greatest books of literary criticism ever written. Um, it, he was freed of of the impediment of yes. the books. No, it's I'm, look, it's it's a ba very basic travel metaphor, yeah. right? It, with which, I mean, of the various metaphors at play in in the book, in my book, that is kind of the the key, yeah. right? It's it's the going away, it's it's the the sailing, however you want to call it, but it's, it's, it's Odysseus, right? It's the desire to tell one's story as the unknown, as the other, masked in, in the other land. You know, I'm going to talk about myself and I'm going to tell you about my adventures, but I'm going to pretend not to be who I am in this whole thing. Of course, he returns, and that's, that's his, you know. But it is that impulse. It's the voyage. It's, it's like the, the, you know, it's the beginning of literature, right? It's, it's, that's how literature is born. The voyage, the going away, the unknown, the encounter with the other, and the becoming the other. And so I feel like, in my own small way, I'm, I'm responding to that. You know, I'm responding in this book to decades of reading, I'm responding to be a, being a student at Barnard College, you know, in the 80s, and having my head spinning with ideas and, 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 and feeling overwhelmed in the best of ways by... by the too much of it By all. the too much of it all, exactly. And, and I think in this book, I'm, in Italian, I'm able to start really looking and thinking about all of what has gone in and circulated and sedimented and all of that, you know, with a certain strange clarity in spite of all of the Difficult. kind of difficulties, the awkwardness, the, the brusqueness, the lack of grace, you know, in, in spite of those things, um, there's just that sheer, that sheer will to see things in Clearly, the, for in, once in the and book, for all. you you speak beautifully about your your rediscovery of reading, and again, this notion of slowness of reading in Italian as a way of going back to the Im initial immersive quality of reading as a child. Um, you say, "I read as I did when I was a girl. As an adult, as a writer, I rediscover the pleasure of reading." It reminded me of of a wonderful line of Carlo Ginzburg who speaks about the slowness. There's a movement of slow food in Italy and also in the world and a movement also which he thinks should exist of slow reading. You know, there is a pace at which if one reads right, one understands. If one reads too quickly, maybe one doesn't understand. Um, when we read too fast or too slow, we understand nothing. This is what Pascal says, quand on lit trop vite ou trop doucement, on n'entend rien, one doesn't hear anything. So I'm wondering if the experience of learning and reading in Italian has taught you to read in a different way. Oh, yeah. And in I'm... what way? Well, 
I mean, I have to read more actively, right? Because it's, I'm going, I mean, now it's different. Now I've been reading for four years, I just read in Italian. So I've found a certain, more or less, I just go. You know, it's not like four years ago when I was just filling up notebook after notebook with all of these words I didn't know. And, you know, it was a kind of, um, it was a very different kind of experience, you know, because I, my vocabulary was, was very scant and, um, and I was reading literature. So, you know, I mean, I was reading writers and uh, I just, I could access it. I mean, I knew more or less what was being said, but I wasn't, I wasn't getting it. I wasn't getting the, the depth of it. Um, the, the, all of the, the, the sfumature, it was just, I couldn't get the subtleties, right? The shadings of the language. Um, and then there were simply millions of things I, I simply didn't understand at all. Like, what does that word mean? I don't know. I have to look it up. Um, because all of this is happening alone. You know, but nobody's helping me. Nobody's reading with me. I'm not reading for a class. I'm not reading with a teacher. Um, I mean, I, I, I worked hard on my conversation with, with people. So people would say, this is the, you know, they would, so they would force that muscle um, into some coherent shape. But the reading was a very solitary, you know, deliberate, deliberate path of my own. And I had different strategies that I kind of talk about in the book. And, you know, and I, I realized, I mean, I remember even in, in Rome in the beginning, I would read in this, in this, you know, I had a whole setup. You know, I, would, I had the book, and then I had the, the dictionaries, and then the little notebook, and, you know, I just, I had all of, I needed it. I needed, all, I needed the support, kind of. And, and now I, I need it less, you know. I mean, I underline a word here or there. Sometimes I don't, sometimes I know all the words, you know, and... Um, so the dictionary doesn't go with you everywhere anymore. Well, the original dictionary that I talk about Which in the book... Which features beautifully. It's a, it's a character in the book. Yes, the, the, really the main character. Um, Maybe, yeah. I think that he's the, he Maybe or she... Maybe that's why you loved uh, I did, and it was... Well, because I describe it as a bar of soap, yeah. and that one was also... Was and it was green. You know, it had that green bar of soap-like kind quality. of quality. Um, but the original dictionary that I bought in Boston uh, before going to Florence for the first time. Um, that I keep now in my drawer in, in my, my desk in Rome. It just stays there because um, it doesn't help me anymore because it's, an, it's not a monolingual dictionary. And so, I mean, I won't say I know all the words in it. I, I don't. But, but, the words, but, but you've graduated. But the words I, I, I have, I mean, the words I tend to look up aren't there anymore. So I just keep it in the drawer. And now I carry around with me, I have various pocket Italian dictionaries that are just in Italian. Um, I mean, I noted there was a moment in my, along this road, you know, you have certain signposts when you look back and you say, oh, this was, this was when I started, you know... Um, but there was a moment in, in Rome, actually, um, you know, because I have these little notebooks, I have my own kind of, I'm 
private lexicon at this point of these little notebooks where I just write all the words that I don't know. And so many of the first notebooks were all filled with the definitions in English, right? So, bicchiere, glass, whatever. I mean, I just kept writing the, the definitions in English. And then at a certain point, I, just, I realized all the definitions were being written in Italian, just out as a, like something happened in my head. And I didn't... You're not the, even the, aware of the, it. I wasn't even aware of it, exactly. So now, for years, when I look up words and I write them, I don't, I don't write the definition in, in English. I write it in Italian. Um, and that was when I switched over to all of the monolingual dictionaries. So now I just, you know, I have a... I bought at the Labyrinth bookstore in Princeton a... You know, I was desperate. I thought, I, I can't have an office without an Italian dictionary in it, right? That's not right. Um, and I went and I got the, the most kind of bearable, looked like the, big, the best one, and I, I brought it back to the office. And every time I've had to look up a word, it's not there. I mean, the words I need aren't in that dictionary anymore. And I, but I hate the online dictionary. I mean, I go to it, of course. I have to sometimes. You go to the library in Princeton? I love the library, my God. It's so nice. It's, one of, it's like the nicest thing in Princeton. <laughs> Firestone. No, Firestone is really... I don't know. In, in my days, it yeah. was open you know, until four in the morning. I, I don't know if... Well, they... I don't live there, so I don't know. But maybe when I live there, if I can't sleep at four in the morning... morning I, you know where to I, go I and look go. for Italian dictionaries. Well, it's just a beautiful library. Yeah. You know, it really is. And I, I, um, I've scoped out the whole Italian... Section. They, they, they know you there. Yeah. So um, earlier on, you, you, you said we never we never stop trying to to uh, understand our parents. And um, at one point, very much towards the end of your book, you say, "I came to Italy partly to know my characters better." Comma my parents. That's an extraordinary sentence. My characters better. I would not have assumed that after that would come my parents. Well, I mean, so many of my characters were inspired by my parents, right? Or not specifically by my parents, but by my parents' lives, their experiences, their mode of being, their concerns, their, you know, their reality, the reality they, they carry within them that I, was, that I was exposed to and sensitive to and privy to, which I knew was at, at odds with the reality at large in my life growing up here, you know, and so when you, when you're raised by people who are living in a different reality, You know, and um, in a state of constant nostalgia, in some sense. Yes, constant nostalgia, constant. What does this word mean? I mean, constant. You know, um, trying to figure it out. Constant. You know, uh, anxiety. You know, um, in some sense, um, not without their bearings. You know, not without their strumenti. You know. And, uh, and of course, with time, yes, then this process evens off a little bit and one learns and learns to cope and survive and, 
build and enjoy and move forward in another world. But you know, but but I I'm the first child, and I I saw that beginning arc, you know, of my parents just um, just figuring it all out, uh, and that. That's, that, that, those are my first seven years. You know, that marked me so profoundly. Um, you know, I, I, I can't really, if I have any point of reference, it's, it's that, right? It's, it's all of that anxiety and confusion and distress and, um, and everything, by the way, happening in another language, not in English. Bengali. In Bengali. I mean, we had no people who spoke English ever came into our home. You know, so um, that's how it was. And now, now their, their nostalgia has been transformed into your nostalgia for a certain kind of place, Italy, in your mind. A nostalgia for not, not the homeland, but it's... it's it's a, I mean, the, the, the whole word of, uh, the whole idea of nostalgia is so interesting. Uh, you know, this kind of ache, yearning for home. Yes. And it's, it's, a, it's a home that you have made for yourself. It's, it's not like the home of your, your parents where it was a specific place that was theirs. This is a place that has become yours out of kind of a deliberate choice. Yes, it's a nostalgia that I've created. It's a sickness that I've, that I went out and exposed myself to on purpose, you know. But I think it's... We, we spoke about that a little bit yeah. once, that, you know, the, yeah. the whole idea of nostalgia was created in the 17th century by a, a Swiss, Swiss physician, Swiss physician. Yeah. Um, who discovered that the Swiss army mercenaries were missing the Alps. And so he created the word nostos algos, kind of the ache for the homeland. It's incredible. I mean, that Isn't it's it? an invented word is incredible. Yeah. You know, just from the linguistic point of view, that, that's very powerful. Because I think language is one of the principal tools for... Um, I hate this verb, battling, but I, it's one of the principal tools for... For, for coping with nostalgia, for feeling it, you know. I mean, all of poetry, so much of poetry is coming out of that. And, it, and, and what, is the, what is the way to express this? It's, it's language, right? And it's, so it strikes me that it's, uh, the word itself is uh, this kind of deliberate construction the from way. these two Greek, you yeah. know, in a way, uh, what would we do without nostalgia? Would be, a, I mean, we need it in some sense. Well, I think, I mean, I, maybe, I, I think so. I mean, I was, I was strangely jealous of my mother's nostalgia, though as I watched her being consumed by it, as I watched her suffering from it so deeply, you know, and all I wanted to do as a child was take her nostalgia away. I just wanted to smother it with a blanket because I knew how painful it was for her to feel it. And I just, I, everything, I was just, I was, and I was, of course, powerless to do anything because it was so huge and the place was so far. 
and the relationship was so distant and broken and distant and never enough, never enough, nothing, nothing ever satisfied, you know, no trip. If it was one month, couldn't be, it be two months? If it was two months, why couldn't it be four months? If it was six months, why couldn't it be a year? You know? Um, so when you're watching, you know, when I was watching my mother going through this, and I, she's still going through it. I mean, it hasn't stopped, really. Um, it's changed, but it hasn't stopped. And, and I just, I wanted so desperately to, to make it go away. And the fact that I couldn't do it made me so... I just, I just hoped somehow I could do something about it. I mean, I remember once I gave her a little... I gave her a wallet and I, as a gift, and I went to Calcutta and I took a photograph of the building where she was raised. You know, her, her Ithaca, her everything, you know, her frame of reference the place where she was happy, right? And I took a little picture of it and I put it in the little transparent window and I gave this to her as her gift and I thought, well, maybe every time she opens up the wallet, she'll see the, the, the photograph of the building. But these are odd things for a child to do, right? Um, maybe not so odd. I, don't, I mean, I, I love my mother. I wanted her to feel better, you know? But, um, but then what happens years later? I mean, I'm, I, I come, I, I make this journey on my own and on purpose, everything on purpose, everything sought out, everything deliberate. deliberate. And then I come back and I, I find myself suffering in my own way, um, very lost, very looking at pictures of my apartment in Rome, you know, staring at the computer screen, saying, oh, yes, there's my desk, you know. But I was strangely proud of that feeling because I felt that it meant that I was rooted somewhere in my heart, you know, and that the, the, and, but that the physical place, too. I mean, I'm already rooted in many ways, you know. I'm rooted in my family. I'm rooted with my my children and my husband, I'm rooted with my work, I'm rooted with my books. In any language, I'm rooted with those things. Um, and I have been for some time, you know. Um, I think ever since the moment I became a writer, I felt somehow, okay, I'm connected somehow to the world, to the universe. It's there's, going to be okay. There's this you passage know? which I, I, I love, in, in your book where you say, today I no longer feel bound to restore a lost country to my parents. It took me a long time to accept that my writing did not have to assume that responsibility. In that sense, in other words, it's the first book I've written as an adult, but also from the linguistic point of view as a child. I continue as a writer to seek the truth, but I don't give the same weight to factual truth. In Italian, I'm moving towards abstraction. The places are undefined. The characters so far are nameless, without a particular cultural identity. The result, I think, is writing that is freed in certain ways from the concrete world. I now construct a less specific setting. 
a simple question. What do you, what do you mean by abstraction? Well, I mean exactly what it what it is. Is that you know abstract in that it could be any place that the that the need for the specific place falls away. Because again, I mean to go back to the little wallet anecdote, what is that about? It's the fact that a specific place, one place in the world, one building, in one city, you know, in the world, is is the center of, you know, what I perceive Focus. to be the center of my mother's happiness and well-being. And so the distance from that city, the, the going back to that house, staying in that house, everything is sort of determined by that one specific building, right? And so, in a way, I mean, so yes, on the one hand, I'm sort of jealous of my my mother's nostalgia and jealous of that sense of, I, okay, there's a place in the world that, that, that is so important and that I'm so identified with that this is kind of the thing that defines me. And even if I can't have it, it defines me. You know, I, I define myself in opposition or in, in absentia. I'm still defined by it, right? And on the other hand, I feel, you know, I just, I just want to obliterate the power that it has, the power that place has, you know? I just want it, it's like all of this, all of this identity, the whole business of identity is, is something that I think I'm really thinking about very differently right now and, and trying to get beyond it and trying to sort of, um, you know, get to the other side of all of these labels and everything, you know, oh, you're language writer in the English language. Oh, but you're Indian American. Oh, but Calcutta. Oh, but this. No, you know. And I, and I felt like I feel like all of the books I've written until this, they're all about that. It's all in a sense trying to put into books the picture in that wallet. Do you see? That, that's a comma. My parents. Yes, that's it. It's like how can I render present? How can I bring to them? What is missing? And should a child, yes. as you were saying earlier, feel that burden, that, yes. that knee, I mean, which yes. is... Yes, and so if I write stories now that have nothing to do with that specific neighborhood, that street, that building, those times, I'm free. You're free. I'm free because I feel like now I can, I can write really what I, what I want and what I need to write without... Fin finally. Yes, and this is very liberating for me. This is very liberating for me because I think the whole, all of the past four books, the frame of reference was my parents. In fact, I know it, you know. In an earlier conversation we had on, on, a, on a series I have called A Phone Call from Paul, you, you mentioned to me uh, your discovery in Italian of a Romanian writer who wrote in French. Um, who's a magnificent writer, not very well known in America, but a little bit. Susan Sontag made him somewhat well known at a point when people read Susan Sontag. Uh, called I Sio make my students read Pardon? Susan you make, Sontag. Well, so yeah. your students uh, know uh, Emile Sioran, the great Romanian writer, who wrote a book called, in English, it's called The Trouble with Being Born, but it's not a correct translation, it's of the inconvenience, de l'inconvénient d'être né, of the inconvenience of being born. Yes. Isn't it? 
And I thought I would read you one passage and just have you react to it. And the passage goes like this. Everyone has had, at a given moment, an extraordinary experience, which will be for him, because of the memory of it, he preserves the crucial obstacle to his inner metamorphosis. Well, I mean, every word he writes in this book is, is, is very uh, powerful. You know, I, I yes, I, re I mean, it was a... We have certain books that we read and they, one never forgets the experience of reading them. So reading this book in Italian for me was, was one of those. I, I mean, it wasn't even, maybe it was a year ago, so fairly recent. Um, a, 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 a friend told me about the book. I'd never heard of him. But a friend of mine who is actually the translator, the Italian translator of, of Cozzie and others, um, her name is uh, Maria Balocchi, um, I think is her last name. Anyway, um, she, uh, she told me about him one day. We were having dinner. And she said, do you know, do you know Choran? Choran. Choran, Italian. Do you know Choran? And I said, my sentito nominare. And she said, well, you must, you must read him. Um, you know, because he writes about, he writes all about his passage from Romanian to French. And um, I think you're really going to, you know, you're going to, I think you need to read him. Um, and, you know, it was one of those life-changing encounters with a, with a mind, with, and, 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 um, and this book in particular, I mean, he writes so uh, powerfully, succinctly about so many of the themes, I think, that, that have been preoccupying me as a person. I mean, well, I'm not the, talking the, about... The word metamorphosis well, is it's, it's, interesting. That's the heart of the book, right? And okay. so the, what you read is, is you know, is, is, it certainly resonates on many, many levels in terms of... But it's interesting what you say, but the obstacle to metamorphosis, you know, and maybe the obstacle to metamorphosis... He says it. Yes, he says it. Yeah. The obstacle to metamorphosis is that sense of... I mean, you know... I um, so one of these one of the other extraordinary things about my learning Italian is that I was able to then have, um, um, you know, psychotherapy in Italian, right? After years of in English, so this was a whole other fascinating journey I was making, right, in another language. And I, I'm curious now. I'm very curious. I've talked to some people about you know what it means to have that experience in a, in learned language. Um, but, you know, one of the, one of the things, you know, um, uh, she told me, um, very early on was, you know, every change necessitates a betrayal. So, you know, ogni cambiamento richiede un tradimento. So... When you read that to me, I think, okay, yes, I went through this. I, 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 I sort of, um, and she, she, I mean, I don't want to talk about my psychotherapist that much, but, but there, but you know, she, there are words that she said, 
she, that she uses that are helpful to me. You know, she says things like, you know, stai autocreando, you know, you are yeah. creating yourself in, in what you're doing. This is part of what you're doing. Um, and she's right, of course, and, and this, this willed metamorphosis, you know, not a natural metamorphosis. I'm not a caterpillar or a butterfly. I mean, this is not genetically programmed into me, right? Um, and so in some sense, I'm doing something very unnatural. Um, and the other day at the Italian embassy in, in Washington, I talked about um, another sort of metaphor that came to me after writing In Altre Parole. Um, the term in Italian is, is innesto, which means graft, right? The botanical term to graft. And, um, and I think this is another one of those key metaphors for what's happening here for me on the ling linguistic level. I am trying to graft myself onto Italian. Why? Because I'm trying to grow in some other, in another way, another direction with some, you know, and what is the point of the graft? What is the point of, of the nesto? It's to, to obtain a new fruit, a, perhaps a better fruit, right? Um, so I think this is a very interesting metaphor, and in fact, I discovered it by reading, I was reading Elena Ferrante, um, and in, 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 in La Fide Oscura, um, which is translated as the, I can't remember, the lost child, maybe? Um, lost daughter. Um, she, uh, there's a moment in which the mother character, this sort of troubled, one of the many troubled mother characters in the novels of Elena Ferrante, and she's talking about her relationship to her two daughters. And she says, you know, she's, she's commenting on how they're different from, sh from, from, from herself and how they're traits that are more like her husband with whom she has, a, of course, naturally a strange relationship, all these things. And she says at one point, um, temevo che fosse un innesto sbagliato. I feared that it was a, that, that, that it was a failed innesto. This, this bond with her children, failed graft. the failed graft. And I was really very struck by that terminology, the failed graft. And I, I thought about it, I thought about it, and then I wrote a piece about it, actually, in Italian, kind of trying to pick it apart and, and, and unpack it a little bit. And, um, and I do think that what I'm doing with the language is there's, there's that element of you know, the fear, the fear that it's going to be a failed graft. And so many people have criticized me for what I'm doing, you know, from the very beginning, from even before I wrote the book, you know. Why? Yeah. You know, don't do this, don't do this. It won't the, the, be good It won't you. be good, it's bad, bad it's for bad for you, it's bad. bad for you, it's bad for them, it's bad for everybody, just don't do it, just walk away, Jumpa, just walk away, just go away, you know, from, just walk away from the room, you know. Little did they know. Well, they still may be right, but, but the point is, it's, it was, so when you make the Inesto, I mean, it's sort of, you know, in good faith, and you hope, you, you, you put it together. As a doctor would. Yes, you put it together, you join these, you fuse these elements, and then you kind of hope 
that something will solidify and that over time something will come of that kind of operate operation, right? On purpose to um, to join to to regenerate in some way, right? So this whole autocreazione, you know, what is that all about? It's sort of this regenerative impulse, a remaking impulse. Um, but, I mean, I think so many artists on so many paths, or what is the word, so many points along the journey do things like this, you know? And hope. And hope and and throw away and don't look the other way and stop doing what they're doing. That's what I meant by little did they know that you wouldn't stop. You know, that well, you but, would be yes. deliberately pers persevering regardless. But that's the, the adolescent the part of this midlife crisis. But maybe midlife crises are basically a second adolescence. Maybe this is nothing new. But That's hopeful too. But, it's, but that's what it is, you know. I mean... And it was, it was interesting because, you know, I was thinking a lot about Philip Guston before I went to Rome, because he went to Rome, of course, and then it was in Rome that he had his rethinking um, uh, back to the figurative, you know, or to the figurative. Um, and, and I, too, was looking for something. And I, I mean, I have this Philip, you know, I have a Philip Guston beautiful postcard of, of a book, one of his books, of right over my desk in Brooklyn. I look at it all the time, right? And little did I know, you know, that, that, that in Rome, this, all of this would, would start to happen, the, the metamorphosis, the graft, the, but again, it's, you have, there's a betrayal implicit you know, and maybe part of the betrayal is being able to say to myself, I can write what I want to write, how I want to write, in whatever language I choose to write in, and I don't have to listen to, to everybody telling me the, how to write it, what to write about, and what language to use. The noise around. Yes. I promised everybody in closing, as we nearly close the evening for them to, to hear your seven words. Oh, okay. And here are your seven words um, in Italian. And maybe, maybe then you can translate them as you did for me in English. Uh, okay. Uh, senza lingua madre, radicata tramite le parole, which I translated as without a mother tongue rooted by words. Now, five words could have been used also and were beautifully by Milos, where he says, language is the only homeland. Yes. I was reminded of it when, when reading in other words. I'd like to close by, by reading a passage. Um, Why do I write? To investigate the mystery of existence, to tolerate myself, to get closer to everything that is outside of me. 
If I want to understand what moves me, what confuses me, what pains me, everything that makes me react, in short, I have to put it into words. Writing is my only way of absorbing and organizing life. Otherwise, it would terrify me, it would upset me too much. What passes without being put into words, without being transformed, and in a certain sense purified by the crucible of writing, has no meaning for me. Only words that endure seem real. They have a power, a value superior to us. Given that I try to decipher everything through writing, maybe writing in Italian is simply my way of learning the language in a more profound, more stimulating way. Ever since I was a child, I've belonged only to my words. I don't have a country, a specific culture. If I didn't write, if I didn't work with words, I wouldn't feel that I'm present on the earth. What does a word mean and a life? In the end, it seems to me the same thing. Just as a word can have many dimensions, many nuances, great complexity, so too can a person, a life. Language is a mirror, the principal metaphor, because ultimately the meaning of a word, like that of a person, is boundless, ineffable. Now I've asked Jhumpa Lahiri to read that passage in the original, in Italian. Thank you, Paul. Perché scrivo? Per indagare il mistero dell'esistenza, per tollerare me stessa, per avvicinare tutto ciò che si trova al di fuori di me. Se voglio capire quello che mi colpisce, quello che mi confonde, quello che mi angoscia, in breve tutto ciò che mi fa reagire, devo metterlo in parole. La scrittura è il mio unico modo per assorbire e per sistemare la vita, altrimenti mi sgomenterebbe, mi sconvolgerebbe troppo. Ciò che passa senza essere messo in parole, senza essere, essere trasformato, è in un certo senso purificato dal crogiuolo dello scrivere, non significa nulla per me. Solo le parole che durano mi sembrano reali hanno un potere, un valore superiore a noi. Visto che io provo a decifrare tutto tramite la scrittura, forse scrivere in italiano è semplicemente il mio modo per apprendere la lingua nel modo più profondo, più stimolante. Fin da ragazza, fin da ragazza appartengo soltanto alle mie parole. Non ho un paese e una cultura precisa. Se non scrivessi, se non lavorassi alle parole, non mi sentirei presente sulla terra. Cosa significa una parola e una vita? Mi pare alla fine la stessa cosa. Come una parola può avere tante dimensioni, tante sfumature, una tale complessità, così una persona, una vita. La lingua è lo specchio, la metafora principale, scusate, perché in in fondo il significato di una parola, così come quello di una persona, è qualcosa di smisurato, di ineffabile. Jhumpalahiri, thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook. 
and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.